Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today we meet to consider the nominations of the following individuals. The Honorable David Steele Bohegan to be Executive Vice President of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Mr. Ray Washburn to be President of OPIC. Ms. Kelly Eccles Curry to be U.S. Representative to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations and alternative representative to the sessions of the UN General Assembly. And Mr. J. Patrick Murray to be alternate representative for special political affairs at the United Nations and alternate representative to the sessions of the UN General Assembly. I welcome each of our nominees as well as your families. I'd also like to welcome our distinguished guest to introduce one of the nominees, the senior center from Texas, Senator Cornyn. Um, before I do that, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, your fellow Texan, my former colleague, uh, a great American, Pete Sessions, uh, a great congressman um, who, uh, who kind of showed me the ropes as I was getting started in Congress. So um, thank you, Senator Cornyn, for being here today, and um, uh, I'd like uh, to recognize you for your remarks, sir. Chairman Young, uh, members of the committee, thank you for letting me be here today to introduced my friend and fellow Texan, Ray Washburn. Uh, today's hearing and the issues at the core of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation come at an opportune time. On the heels of the President's trip overseas, and as our country reasserts its economic role on the global stage, it's important for us to be realistic about how we support our allies. U.S. direct aid is only a small portion of the capital flow that drives the world's economy. Our best tools are frequently found in the private sector, and that's where Ray comes in and his experience. When you look at his background and dedication, you'll see that he is a strong fit for this role. His drive for success started at an early age. His first business venture, I'm told, was mowing lawns at age nine with 20 employees. That's pretty impressive. And his vision for what can be accomplished with hard work and perseverance started even before that. I'm told he keeps a ruler hanging on his office wall from when uh, the Park City Bank and Trust Building in Dallas opened when he was eight years old. He now owns that building and views the ruler as a symbol of one's ability to set goals and find creative potential. But many across Texas know him for the role he's played in the Dallas economy, specifically. After paying his own way through Southern Methodist University, he went on to become one of Texas's most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs. As the co-founder of M Crowd Restaurant Group, his footprint now spans 40 restaurants, including the perennial Texas favorite, Mikosina. He understands the importance of investing, not simply for the sake of ownership and profit, but for reinvigorating the local economy. One look at Highland Park Village in Dallas, a refurbished shopping center near his alma mater, will show you what I mean by that. Ray also serves as an adjunct professor at the SMU Cox School of Business, where his wisdom and, ex and expertise are shared with future generations. And he also lends a hand as a volunteer and board member for organizations around Texas, including the Urban Land Institute, Baylor Healthcare System Foundation, the Real Estate Council, and the World Presidents Association. Alongside his family, Ray volunteers for the SM Wright Foundation, which serves the most impoverished in Dallas and 
the family legacy and family legacy in Africa, which is encourages education for the region's orphans. And somehow he manages to balance all of this with his three children at home who are here today and with his life partner, Heather, who is a formidable businesswoman in her own right. I know Ray shares my belief that OPIC is an important tool in the United, in the United States toolkit. It allows us to encourage natural economic growth and stability in areas of the world that need it the most. And while there are certainly changes that can be made, especially when we consider the long-term future of OPIC and the sometimes unbalanced investments made by the United States, Ray, I believe, will be an experienced and dedicated person at the table advocating on behalf of the United States of America. Once he's confirmed, we can be sure that he will marry the United States' interests and the developing world's potential into an economically sufficient and innovative future. So thank you, Chairman Young, members of the committee, for giving me the privilege of uh, introducing my friend Ray Washburn, and I hope the committee will uh, support his nomination. Thank you, Senator Cornyn. And since the good senator introduced Mr. Washburn, uh, I'll take liberties here and, and provide a little additional background on the other three nominees. Mr. Bohegian is the managing director of Pluribus Ventures, an advisor to financial services firms and growth companies. Earlier, he served on the core management team of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. Prior to Bridgewater, Mr. Bohegian served as an assistant secretary of commerce. Welcome. Ms. Curry is currently a senior fellow with the Project 2049 Institute where she specializes in political reform, development, and humanitarian assistance, human rights, and other non-traditional security issues in the Asia-Pacific region. She previously held senior policy positions with the Department of State and several international and non-governmental human rights and humanitarian organizations. Good to have you here. And Colonel Murray is a retired U.S. Army colonel uh, with distinction in Iraq the Balkans, the U.S. Embassy Moscow uh, as an advisor in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs at the Department of State, and as the U.S. Military Representative at the United Nations. Good to have you here, Colonel. Before uh, I, I go further, I, I'd like to invite Senator Cornyn uh, to depart at your leisure. I know how busy we get around here. And thank you to Chairman Sessions, again, for your attendance. Before I turn to Senator Merkley for his statement, in light of the positions uh, today's nominees seek to fill, I'd like to make a few brief comments about the UN and OPIC. As you point out in your prepared remarks, Mr. Murray, the United Nations is an entity with much promise. It's also an entity that too often falls short of that promise. I admire Ambassador Haley's efforts to do what she can to seek reform and accountability at the UN. There's no doubt that having additional high-level appointees at the UN will allow for increased U.S. engagement with the United Nations on a reform agenda. The Ambassador for Special Political Affairs position will play an important role in peacekeeping reform in particular. This is an area in, desire, in, in dire uh, need of reform. From missions that fail to fulfill their mandates to missions that outlive their purpose, or worse yet, missions rife with sexual exploitation that victimize those that are supposed to be protected, there's no doubt UN peacekeeping reform, uh, which is long overdue. 
As you suggest in your prepared remarks, Mr. Murray, both whistleblower protections and training must be strengthened. The ambassador to the Economic and Social Council of the UN will also play an important role, including potentially in efforts to reform the UN Human Rights Council. I'd note that our subcommittee held a hearing on the UN Human Rights Council on May 25th. As that hearing highlighted, some of the countries with the worst possible human rights records sit on the Human Rights Council, using their membership to deflect attention from their egregious human rights abuses, instead attempting to pass judgment on Israel. Addressing this unacceptable status quo should be a top priority. Those are a few of the reasons I'm hopeful that this committee and the larger Senate will process these two UN nominations expeditiously so that they can be in a position and get to work before the UN General Assembly in September. As I said, we also have two individuals who've been nominated to lead OPIC. I look forward to discussing OPIC's mission and the increasing importance of the private sector in international development. With that, I'd like to recognize the distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Merkley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'm delighted we're holding this hearing as we exercise our advice and consent responsibility. And thank you to each of you for putting yourselves forward to uh, take and consider being serving in these important public roles. In the aftermath of the most destructive conflict in history, the United States worked in concert with its allies and partners to found the United Nations, a body chartered to, quote, save succeeding generations from the scourge of war and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Those are powerful, aspirational missions. And the United Nations has uh, pursued these lofty standards better when guided by American leadership. Confirming nominees to critical roles will help the United Nations fulfill the aspirations that were so well laid out in the beginning. I've been concerned about the pace of the process for nominating candidates to key positions, and I'm pleased that we are moving forward today with this hearing at the United Nations for the United Nations Economic and Social Council and the United Nations Security Council. I look forward to hearing from all of you in terms of what you see as key changes or objectives that you might bring to your roles. I'm delighted that we now have nominees for the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, or OPIC. OPIC is a self-sustaining U.S. agency that does important work facilitating American investment in emerging markets. I've been long impressed with their work, which is why I was so troubled to see the administration's budget call for OPIC's elimination. Zeroing out OPIC is especially problematic as OPIC operates at no net cost to taxpayers, in fact, reduces our deficits. Its revenues back to the U.S. Treasury have helped reduce the deficit for 39 consecutive years, including more than $3.7 billion in deficit reduction over just the past 10 years. So I am excited that these nominations may well signal a reversal in the administration's plans to eliminate the agency, and I certainly look forward to hearing the nominees' views on the administration's plans. Thank you again for your willingness to serve, and look forward to your comments. Well, thank you, Senator Merkley. Uh, we'll now turn to our nominees. 
I appreciate your willingness to serve in these important capacities. I'd remind you your full statements will be included in the record without objection. For your opening statements, let's go in the order that I used earlier. I encourage each of you to start by recognizing uh, any family or friends who may be attending today. Mr. Bohigian. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee, thank you for offering me the opportunity to appear here today. I'm honored to be nominated to be the Executive Vice President of OPIC. I'd like to thank the members of the committee and their staff for the time they spent with me prior to the hearing. Thank you, too, for the invitation to have my family join me here today. My son, Steele, and younger daughter, Caroline, are away at camp. I'm joined here by my fantastic wife, Catherine, who I love more than words can express. And I'd note in particular my daughter, Kate, served as delegate for the United States, the model United Nations, where she achieved outstanding delegate earlier this year. Thank you for being here. I also want to thank my parents for supporting me. Every day I'm trying to live up to their example of serving their community and their family. I'd also like to recognize my fellow nominees, and in particular Mr. Washburn, who's been nominated to be the CEO and president of OPIC. As noted earlier, Mr. Washburn is a successful businessman who has a long history of analyzing companies and investments for their potential. He combines a keen business sense with a deep consideration of the impact that businesses will have on the broader community. His superb character has been shaped by a family, not only here today, but that has served this nation as senators, governors, congressmen, and also includes a secretary of state and an ambassador. I expect these qualities will serve him well as president and CEO of OPIC. If confirmed, I hope my government experience and business track record will complement his values and abilities and skills as OPIC seeks to help American businesses succeed in international markets. Earlier in my career, I had the distinct privilege to serve as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Market Access and Compliance in the International Trade Administration. My job was to ensure that American companies could compete fairly in international markets. I worked with American businesses and foreign governments to develop an international business climate that created opportunities for American workers and spread American values. In that role, I'm proud to have launched the Entrepreneurship Initiative, where small businesses could advocate to reduce barriers to trade and open new markets for American goods and services. I'm also proud to have led the U.S. government's first clean energy trade mission, where U.S. businesses developed lasting and profitable relationships in China and India. Prior to that role, I was the director of the Department of Commerce's Office of Policy and Strategic Planning, where I advised two secretaries on economics and energy. In business, I've helped companies grow and prosper, working across every corporate function from operations to strategy in a variety of roles, including founder, CEO, and managing director. I have founded businesses such as an energy efficiency project finance firm and a startup incubator, as well as assisting countless companies enter new markets. I've helped manage some of the world's most innovative financial services firms in a career that has spanned venture capital, private equity, investment banking, and 
hedge funds. Across these disciplines, I have learned to turn concepts into companies, analyze business prospects, structure projects, develop global supply chains, and evaluate microeconomic and macroeconomic developments. I believe these experiences have helped prepare me to guide the important work ahead. American businesses operating in international markets deliver opportunities to workers in the U.S. and develop tangible benefits to partner companies, laying the foundation for global peace and prosperity. When the American private sector builds power plants, water treatment facilities, or airports, the benefits aren't simply economic. These partnerships lift environmental, social, and governance standards around the world. International connections developed through business lead to deeper cross-cultural understanding and create the conditions for global opportunity and compassion. Throughout Europe, Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and the Western Hemisphere, American private sector investment has promoted American jobs, American values, and lifted living standards to heights unimaginable in earlier generations. Almost 250 years ago, the Declaration of Independence boldly asserted that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were unalienable rights. I believe these rights are immutable and eternal and underpin values that have spread prosperity and freedom at home and abroad. If I am confirmed, I'd be honored to continue that tradition and help advocate for American opportunities in the years ahead. Mr. Chairman of the Committee, thank you for that opportunity. Thank you. Mr. Washburn. Thank you, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear here today. Thank you also to the members and staff for graciously giving their time to meet with me prior to today's hearing. I also would like to thank my Senator Cornyn for his kind words and support of my nomination and to my local Congressman Pete Sessions for his support. It is a great privilege to address the committee as President Trump's nominee for President and Chief Executive Officer of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. I am joined this morning by my wife, Heather, sitting directly behind me. I would also like to introduce my three children, Hill, Andrew, and Margot. They are students of history, and today is an opportunity for them to see how our great democracy works. My family has been involved politically and in public service with our republic since the 1850s. My forebears' service as mayors, congressmen, senators, governors, ambassadors, and secretary of state have, by example, given me a great desire to serve the American people. I have personally served on city and state boards and commissions. I have been fortunate to have traveled the world extensively and recently have spent a great deal of time in Africa. In particular, my wife, children, and I support an orphanage in Zambia, and we have worked there the last two summers and have recently funded the construction of a new K-12 school for 300 children in the middle of the most distressed areas of the Zambian capital, Lusaka. We continue to support many of the orphans there, and the experience has given me a deep insight into developmental issues in Africa. I've been an entrepreneur for 37 years. I paid my way through college at SMU by selling carpet door-to-door to students, as well as working in construction. I know the value of a dollar both in the hard work it takes to earn it and to not unjustly take risk to lose it. Since graduating from college, I've been involved in financial services, hospitality, manufacturing, and real estate development. In financial services, my experience has included being on the board and loan committee of several banks involving hundreds of millions of dollars of loans and credit facilities. 
In private equity, I have invested and served on boards of infrastructure, construction, and businesses involved in various equipment and transportation manufacturing. Businesses I have grown have allowed workers to provide for their families, develop their skills, and are cornerstone to the economic fabric of their communities. I believe entrepreneurship promotes values that are integral to the American dream. In real estate, I have acquired and developed everything from office buildings, warehouses, shopping centers, and land developments. In hospitality, 26 years ago, I was a co-founder of a small 10-table restaurant that has grown to over 2,000 employees. Last year, we served over, two, over 6 million customers. All these experiences have prepared me well to lead OPIC. As a businessman, I've dealt with the challenges of running a company, meeting a payroll, and ensuring prudent financial management and risk mitigation. If confirmed, I will use my experience to make OPIC more efficient while being a good steward of the American taxpayer's dollar. I've seen firsthand how American innovation and American capital can impact developing countries. America's entrepreneurial spirit can improve the well-being of people living in some of the world's most vulnerable countries. When an American business is willing to risk capital, it sends a signal to the rest of the world. It signals to the business community that markets are viable. It signals that American businesses have faith in a country's rule of law and that a country is capable of upholding labor and environmental standards. I'm confident, if confirmed, I can guide OPIC through the path forward as determined by the Congress and the President. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I look forward to working with you, the members of the committee, the committee staff, and my colleagues in the administration to ensure OPIC continues to prudently manage its portfolio while upholding American principles abroad. I will provide steady but adaptable leadership. In the meantime, I welcome the chance to serve our country as President and CEO of OPIC and look forward to any questions you have today. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Washburn. It's, it's broadly understood that uh, public administration can be quite challenging, um, but I can't imagine it be any more challenging than selling carpet to college students door to door. So, um, pr primarily in the girls' dorms. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> we will move on, Miss Curry. <laughs> Not sure I can follow that. Um, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, distinguished members of the committee, thank you so much for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be the United States Representative to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. I am honored to have this opportunity to serve my country and appreciate the confidence President Trump, Secretary Tillerson, and Ambassador Haley have shown in me. I also want to thank my wonderful family who's here today, particularly my husband, Peter, and my children, Mac and Sarah, for all of their support and encouragement. My mother, Beth, and my stepfather, Gene Price, who have come today from Thomasville, Georgia, and my mother-in-law, Dottie Curry, who is very much looking forward to seeing more of her grandchildren in New York, if I'm confirmed. I also have to thank the, everyone at USUN and the other offices at the State Department and the White House, and of course, the great committee staff here at the Foreign Relations Committee, who have helped to guide me through this process. I also am glad to be here today with my fellow nominee, Patrick, and hope that we can move through this process together the rest of the way. <laughs> Finally, I have to give a shout out to my colleagues from Project 2049 who are here today in the audience. When I was growing up in small town South Georgia, enthusiastically participating in Model UN programs in high school, I never dreamed that I would be asked to represent our great nation at the UN. 
Whether serving as the majority staff director of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus or supporting democratic activists in closed societies during my time with the International Republican Institute, I have spent my career working to promote international human rights, human freedom, and human dignity. Today, the universality of human rights is under attack from resurgent authoritarian regimes that are threatened by the very ideas of freedom of expression, freedom of association, and freedom of religion. Regimes that rule through fear, coercion, and co-optation, rather than the consent of the governed, will always seek to limit basic freedoms, both of their own citizens and of others, when possible. Unfortunately, repressive regimes have too often found a safe harbor in the very international bodies that are meant to protect the most vulnerable. This must change if these bodies are to continue to, support the to enjoy the support of the American people. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Ambassador Haley and our colleagues at the State Department to advance the protection of human rights worldwide by refocusing the UN on the core missions that, Ambassador, that Senator Merkley spoke so eloquently of earlier. Among the most critical aspects of America's efforts to elevate and defend human rights and human freedom is our long-standing focus on empowering women and girls. As a mother of a young girl, this issue is of deep personal importance to me. It is vital that girls have equal access to education, women are given equal opportunity to, in the workforce, and women and girls are protected from sexual violence and exploitation. If these efforts are to succeed, men must be partners in these initiatives. Many of the lead UN agencies that address these challenges fall under the ECOSOC umbrella. Unfortunately, overlapping mandates, bureaucratic competition, and other factors have made these UN mechanisms less effective than they could and should be. If confirmed, I look forward to working with our global partners to support the full economic and political participation of women and girls. Another major focus of ECOSOC's work is the global effort to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. While recognizing the value of the framework established by the SDGs, it is important to realize that achieving a more stable, prosperous, and secure global community also requires, requires tackling political issues implicated in systemic human rights abuses and conflict-related crises. If confirmed, I look forward to working with our partners to see how we can work within this framework while also addressing some of its gaps. While there are certainly areas for improvement, ECOSOC is a critical forum for the United States to advocate America's human rights development and humanitarian values and interests. If confirmed, I will be honored to represent the United States at this important body and will work closely with our partners as well as with Congress to demonstrate American leadership in these areas. Thank you so much for the opportunity to appear before the committee today and I look forward to taking your questions. Thank you, Ms. Curry. Colonel Murray. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the alternate representative for special political affairs at the United Nations. I'm grateful to President Trump, Secretary Tillerson, and Ambassador Haley for this opportunity. I'm also grateful to have some friends and family in the audience I'd just like to introduce. My nephew, Clay, his wife, Heidi, and my sharp-as-attack great-niece, Rebecca, sitting right here. Also, some good friends that are here today, Jackie Walcott, Jim Gilmore, Sherry Simmons, David Norcross, and Laurie Michael. 
And Kelly, I also appreciate the opportunity that we've had to go through this together, and if we're confirmed, to work side by side at the United Nations. It was the honor of my life to serve my country in uniform for almost 25 years. While I've retired from the Army, that solemn oath to support and defend the Constitution has no expiration date. If confirmed, I pledge I'll take those same values to the United Nations where I will work tirelessly to defend American national interests and protect our sovereignty. Upon its creation after World War II, the United Nations was seen as a mechanism for peace and stability around the world. And since that time, we've seen the United Nations provide life-saving food and medicine globally, help the weak and the most vulnerable, and send peacekeepers into some of the most dangerous and volatile corners of the world. However, the UN also retains a culture of mismanagement, inefficiency, and too often a lack of accountability. An organization that ignores the activities of grave human rights abusers while repeatedly and unfairly assailing one of our greatest allies, Israel. As we look around the world, it is clear that the United Nations Security Council leaves a great deal to be desired in fulfilling its mandate to maintain international peace and security. So there's certainly much work to be done, and American leadership and American values at the United Nations will be essential as we move forward. I'm grateful for Ambassador Haley's leadership at the United Nations, pressing for vital reforms, insisting on the fair treatment of Israel, and defending global freedoms. We face a myriad of global challenges, including a devastating famine across Africa and Yemen, the growing threat of North Korea, and the ongoing conflict in Syria. Currently, there are some 100,000 peacekeepers deployed around the world, including in some very volatile places such as Mali, South Sudan, and the Central African Republic. The American taxpayer foots 29% of that bill, making our contribution far and away the largest of any uh, United Nations member state. And while we appreciate the vital role of those peacekeepers, the scourge of sexual exploitation and abuse threatens to undermine that role and permanently damage the reputation of the UN's blue helmets. Indeed, when peacekeepers prey upon the very people they are ostensibly there to protect, it is not only vile and wrong, but the viability of the peacekeeping operation itself is greatly diminished. If confirmed, I will fight to ensure that the UN finally holds those responsible, both the individuals and the troop contributing countries, publicly to account and work to improve training efforts at home and whistleblower protections in the field. Additionally, based upon my previous experience, I believe the Security Council must take a goal-oriented approach to peacekeeping. Instead of allowing peacekeeping operations to perpetuate for decades, I think we should establish mandates with clear objectives and hold both the leadership and the host parties responsible for accomplishing those objectives so that we can declare victory and go home. We owe that not only to the troops in the field and the citizens that they are there to protect, but also to the American taxpayer. I have a strong background of military, political, and diplomatic experience. Army foreign area officers have long been described as America's soldier statesmen. I proudly served as a foreign area officer at numerous embassies around the world and at the Department of State in the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs and later at the U.S. mission to the United Nations. I participated in frequent Security Council deliberations pertaining to international peace and security, 
peacekeeping operations, and other issues. If confirmed, I will be involved with these and other similar issues at the United Nations. I am grateful for Ambassador Haley's leadership to the UN, and once again, I'm honored to be considered for this post for the opportunity to work under her leadership. I believe we're at a tipping point where the injection of strong American leadership and values can make a powerful, positive difference. A secure, stable world is decidedly in America's national interest. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before this committee today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Murray. Before I proceed, I'd just like to acknowledge uh, the presence of, of Governor Jim Gilmore in the audience. Didn't see you earlier, sir. Thank you for your service. Uh, we are going to proceed with questions, seven-minute rounds, and um, I will begin with Ms. Curry. Um, Ms. Curry, in your prepared statement, you notice you note that uh, a major role of the United Nations Economic and Social Council is the global effort to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. Some of these 17 goals include zero hunger and, and clean water and sanitation. When I consider these worthy goals, I can't but help but think of the urgent crisis in Yemen. What's your assessment of the situation in Yemen, Ms. Curry? Thank you for asking about the famine and the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and for your excellent work with Senator Cardin introducing your resolution on the four famines and all the attention that you have brought to the issue of the four famines. These complex humanitarian disasters, all of which are man-made, have been almost invisible despite their huge proportions. It is quite amazing that Millions of people are at risk of starvation, imminent risk of starvation, and the world has barely paid attention to it. The United States, through the generosity of the Congress, has supported a $1 billion, contrib $1 billion contribution to the UN OCHA appeal of $5.6 billion. But we've been, I think, disappointed by the lack of, of participation by other partners and hope to see that stepped up. In Yemen, this is one of the most complex of the four because of the presence of different groups that are fighting and the, the involvement of external actors, including the United States um, and the Saudis. So it is, there's a huge conflict element, obviously, here. If confirmed, this is going to be a top priority, working on not only Yemen, but the other three famine or near-famine states, and working very closely with my colleague, um, if he is confirmed with me, to coordinate the, both the kinetic aspects of responding to these, these disasters, as well as the humanitarian. So continuing with Yemen, let's consider the sustainable development goal of zero hunger. According to the UN, there are 6.8 million people in Yemen on the brink of starvation. These people aren't worried about sustainable development goals a, a decade from now, of course. They're worried about where their next meal is going to come from, where their family's next meal is going to come from, their friends, and so forth. Um, consider the sustainable development goal of clean water and sanitation. Due in part to the lack of both of these, it's estimated that about 300,000 people in Yemen uh, have now been infected with cholera, with more than 1,700 deaths. The scale of this crisis demands action, not fatalism, and it sounds as though you have an action orientation, so that's fantastic. You spoke to the lack of participation of partners vis-a-vis uh, -vis this crisis. 
According to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the Yemen 2017 Humanitarian Response Plan is only 33% funded. We still need $1.4 billion. Now, there are a number of countries, a number of partners that have nominally participated. They've committed uh, to uh, give more funds to Yemen to help address this crisis. They've committed to take action with great fanfare, and yet the money is still slow in arriving. If confirmed, Ms. Curry, will you look at this situation in Yemen and consider what countries that you can press to fulfill their financial and moral, moral obligations in Yemen? Absolutely, Senator Young. If confirmed, this will, as I said, be one of the top priorities for the ECOSOC office. It already is a major priority of the ECOSOC team in New York. The in a, the unwillingness or inability of various actors to either constrain their own forces that are harassing and, and making, making it impossible to deliver humanitarian assistance is one of the key factors. So again, working with my colleague in special political affairs, we have to tackle all of this. As you know, this is a man-made famine. This is a famine that results from a, crisis, a, a conflict and not a natural disaster or weather event. This is, and therefore, most of the roots to resolving this famine rely in the political sector and dealing with the political crisis in Yemen. So uh, I, I don't want to linger on Yemen because I want to have enough time to pivot to OPIC uh, briefly, but um, there's another concrete action you can take. Uh, it's something I've been working on, and uh, it pertains to U.S.-funded cranes. These are cranes that uh, are needed in the major port of Hodeida in Yemen to offload food and medical supplies and help mitigate, help staunch uh, this uh, ever-growing humanitarian disaster. And um, there are things, as I see it, that can be done. If, if confirmed, will you look at this situation regarding the cranes, uh, working with our office and others, and consider pressing the Saudi government at the UN to permit delivery of these cranes? Absolutely. Okay. I pledge to do that if confirmed. Thank you. Mr. Washburn and Mr. Bohegian, um, thanks for meeting with me in the office yesterday. Let me ask the question that may be on the minds of multiple members. In its fiscal year 2018 budget request, the Trump administration has proposed the elimination of OPIC. At the same time, you both have been nominated to lead OPIC. Can you concisely, in light of this uncertainty, um, indicate how you view your nomination and the role you'd play at OPIC? Mr. Washburn. Thank you, Chairman. And, and uh, that is the elephant in the room question. And I'm a builder and creator of jobs. And the president and his team know that I'm a builder. I'm not a someone to sit there and look at an organization and, and wind down. But in light of that, the mission of OPIC is something that I believe in. I feel like I've got the right experience to grow it and continue to take its mission forward. But given the light that the president has proposed, I'm willing to work with the committee and the administration in any way that you dictate to us to go. OPIC currently has $22 billion in projects in 162 countries. So to shut it down or flip a switch just would not be practical to do. And so I've if confirmed, I look forward to growing it, improving to the committee, Congress, and the administration, and OPIC is a valuable entity to go forward with. Well, I, for one, 
am encouraged by that response. And, and uh, you, you, you rightly point out that someone would still be needed uh, to manage uh, the existing portfolio. Mr. Bohegian, anything to add to that, sir? No, thank you for that excellent question and the excellent answer. I would just say the president's budget, obviously, is the start of the process. And if confirmed, Mr. Washburn and I uh, look forward to being part of the conversation that Congress administration will have in the months ahead. Thank you. Mr. Merkley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Murray, as you know, the alternate representative for special political affairs plays an important role in negotiating UN Security Council resolutions. A few tasks in diplomacy are more difficult than negotiating resolutions on critical peace and security issues with 14 other council members. It's made all the more difficult by the veto power enjoyed by four other members, including two, China and Russia, that are often at odds with our values. If, if confirmed, how do you intend to rally support at the council for U.S. interests? Thank you for that question, Senator Merkley. That, that is one of the uh, huge challenges with the Security Council, and, and we've seen it play out uh, in places like Syria, where Russia has become so isolated uh, within the Security Council in the world when it comes to the resolution after resolution after resolution that they have vetoed. And that's part of the way the Security Council is set up. It requires us to have extensive conversations and deliberations uh, before we put forward a resolution. And also, I think this is somewhere uh, where we can get help from the United States Senate as well as the administration in dealing directly with um, Russia in this case or when it comes to uh, North Korea uh, with China. So it's a very, very complex and difficult task. And if you're in this position, I, I wish you well in uh, representing the United States. Uh, let me turn to a different question. Uh, when we met before, you expressed doubt on whether human activities are causing climate disruption. Let's set that aside. Let's just acknowledge that 2016 was warmer than 2015, was warmer than 2014, whether or not it was caused by human activities. Many national security experts believe that this climate disruption is a threat multiplier, uh, leading to increased instability around the world as societies clash over resources. Do you share that view of many national security experts and your thoughts on how to, how to address that issue in the context of the United Nations? I appreciate your leadership on this issue and the discussion that we had in your office. As Ambassador Haley has said, that climate change needs to have a role, a position at the table, and when we're discussing these important issues, uh, that we should make sure that that's a, a metric that we include, and I agree with that. Uh, let, me, let me turn to the challenge of our peacekeeping missions, which you've, you've mentioned would be an important responsibility. Uh, the UN peacekeeping operations are tasked with increasingly complex mandates, and some, like MINUSMA in Mali, operate in places where there is no peace to keep. Are UN peacekeeping forces the right tool to address complex security situations like those present in Mali? Mali is the most dangerous peacekeeping operation. Uh, we've had, I, I believe, 77 peacekeepers killed to date. 
And um, you're, you're right, the peace is uh, not so much there to keep. And this is where I believe the Security Council has to play an important role when they start to look at a peacekeeping operation. Obviously, you want to get somebody in there for humanitarian reasons and to protect uh, the, the most vulnerable. And at the same time, if you, if you design a mandate that oversteps its bounds, then you're setting a peacekeeping operation up to fail. And I believe that's the incumbent upon the Security Council to plan that carefully and then to resource it properly. One of the foundations of, uh, that goes back to the founding of the UN, when you put in a security or when you put in a peacekeeping operation, the host parties or the host country needs to be in agreement with that. It's one of the problems we're having in southern Sudan or South Sudan now is we have um, a government that is actually hindering this process. Uh, I, I traveled to southern Sudan uh, with the Security Council a few years back, also to Darfur where we see the same issues with the host country government actually being a hindrance. And so those are some things that the Security Council needs to take very seriously and balance across from uh, the need to protect the most vulnerable and to, to, to deliver humanitarian. So often after a peacekeeping mission begins, facts on the ground can, can change. Are there any peacekeeping missions that you would put forward as examples of, of ones that should be shut down? There are uh, currently, we're, we're up to we're 15 peacekeeping operations now. We recently uh, shut down successfully Ivory Coast and uh, Liberia, which uh, if it continues to plain as it is, I think will be another uh, success mission when that closes down in March of 2018. So I think it's uh, the Security Council is the responsibility to look at the mandates that come up either biannually or annually. That's when we should be, have a lot more flexibility to tweak these peacekeeping operations, to tweak the mandates, and also to hold, hold the uh, leadership as well as the troop contributing countries responsible to fulfill their mandate. As I mentioned in the in my, in my testimony, uh, it it's, would be great to have a political solution so that we can accomplish that, as appears to be the case in Liberia, for example, and then we can shut that peacekeeping operation down, maybe transition it into a political operation to continue with some institution building, and then that frees up troop contributing uh, countries and troops to go elsewhere, such as Mali, where right now the size of Texas we have only about ten or eleven thousand peacekeepers. So those are the those are the balances and the and the criteria I think that the Security Council needs to look at when it comes to peacekeeping operations. You mentioned the mission in South Sudan, UNMIS, and one of the things that developed there is that people were fleeing violence, and tens of thousands descended on the compounds in Juba, seeking shelter. And as fighting spread outside the capital, several other unmissed bases became de facto displacement camps, referred to as protection of civilians sites. And currently, UNMISS is providing physical protection to more than 200,000 civilians at six sites around the country. Um, it raises a whole host of, of questions about uh, the, how the mission has been transformed and but do you support this, this role of the UN in providing this pr protection to these civilians? And is this a, a strategy or this tool, the protection of civilians, that, that should perhaps be used elsewhere? That's a, that's a 
very good and a very difficult question, Senator Merkley. Uh, I, you, you look at all of those, those POCs, as you pointed out, uh, where there are some almost a quarter of a million uh, citizens being protected by peacekeepers. Uh, I, I don't want to pull them out because that makes, the, that makes those citizens vulnerable, that makes the most vulnerable uh, at risk. At the same time, I think it's important to look at what we do at the outset with a mandate and I think a lot more pressure is needed on the leadership and the disparate parties down in southern or South Sudan in order to mitigate these threats to the individuals, to carve out a political uh, solution, and then move toward implementing that solution. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Murray. Uh, Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd, I'd like for the record to reflect that while I was a little bit late to the committee, I was right on time to hear Ms. Curry speak. She's from Thomasville, Georgia. I think I met her in 1990 in the Thomasville Rose Parade in Thomas County, Georgia, when I was running for governor of Georgia, and she was a senior at the University of Georgia. Is that not right? Actually, we met in Professor Charles Bullock's class in 1990 when you were running for governor, and you came and spoke, and Professor, I was not in the Rose Parade. I was busy at school, but yes, we did meet in 1990. Well, I don't forget a pretty face, and I knew we'd met somewhere. <laughs> And when you run for governor of Georgia, you always start in Thomasville at the Rose Parade and work your way up to Atlanta by the end of the race. So. But we're very proud to have you nominated, and we're glad to have you here, and glad to have all of you here. And I'm going to have a question for you in just a minute. Mr. Murray, I really appreciate your answer and response on the question about should we be involved in peacekeeping missions and, and your reflection on the issues of those 15 that we currently have in the, in the world. Is that right? Yes, Senator, 15. Because if anybody – I was the second – member of Congress to ever go to Darfur. And if any of you have ever been to Darfur, you thank God there's a peacekeeping mission in the United Nations because if they, were, if, if they weren't there with mostly South Korean troops and a couple other smaller countries like that, countries like the United States would be implored because of our social conscience to do it or take on that effort in one way or another. So while the UN is problematic in a number of ways and things that it does, it can be central to solve problems that seem insoluble. And I appreciate your attitude towards the peacekeeping missions. Hope you'll work to make them as accountable as possible. But we cannot turn our back on the least fortunate in this world, those that are as oppressed as the people in Darfur, because somebody somehow has got to come to their aid. And I'd like any comments you might have on that. Well, thank you very much for that, Senator. Uh, I spent some time in Darfur as well, and I completely concur with your assessment. When you have uh, uh, a group called Jean Jouid, there, which translates into devils on horseback, preying on the local populace. Uh, this is why we have a United Nations. And, and I think they've been pretty effective. Also, one of the reasons I like Darfur, as well as what's going on in Somalia, is, uh, is our evolving ability to work with regional groups. The Darfur uh, peacekeeping operation, Senators, you know, is a, is a hybrid with the African Union. And we've actually drawn down some of the, the UN troops because we built up those African Union troops. Same in, um, same what's going on in Somalia with the fight against uh, uh, terrorist groups there like Al-Shabaab. So these are the kind of things that um, are exciting to me if I'm confirmed that we can work to, uh, with regional groups as well as 
evolved peacekeeping and how we look at it in the Security Council with the Department of Peacekeeping Operations and the Department of Field Support in order to make it more efficient, more nimble, and maybe save a few taxpayer dollars at the same time. Well, the UN is not a very popular uh, institution in Georgia, and a lot of people think we waste a lot of money sending it to the UN. But if you've ever seen the role they play in these peacekeeping missions, as you mentioned in South Sudan with the General Gratian and the, and the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, where we tried to make a difference there, which obviously fell apart in large measure, but you would appreciate the work that they do for, for the world and for the country. And one of these days, this effort's going to materialize into friends of the United States friends of peace and liberty, not the type of evil things that are going on in Africa right now. Ms. Curry, you, you're an honor graduate of the University of Georgia. Magna cum laude or cum laude? One of the two. Just Neither cum laude. one of which I achieved. <laughs> thank you, Lottie. <laughs> Just cum laude, sir. Thank you. After leaving the University of Georgia, I know she had a quick stint in Hilton Head Island, which everybody ought to go through once in their life to earn, earn a living waiting on tables. But from there on, you went straight to Washington and went straight where? I came to work on the Hill, sir, and I worked for my home state congressman from Georgia, Sanford Bishop, for a year, and then went to work for a great member of Congress who I had worked, interned with, John Porter, in the House. Yeah, Sanford is a, is a great representative from our state, and John Porter is one of the finest people you'd ever want to meet and did so much good in the arena that you're going to be working in so much in terms of the, the United Nations. I couldn't agree with you more, sir. With regard to the United Nations, I, I, my plea to all of you is to help elevate the influence and the role of the United States in the operation of the United Nations. Every time they do good things, they turn around and appoint somebody like Iran, Iran, the head of the Human Relations Council or committee, and do something that's just unfathomable consideration-wise. But it is a valuable tool for us. I know in OPEC and the number of investments that the United States makes around the world where we can use economic, the economic power of the United States and invest in things that create jobs and opportunity for people in oppressed countries and depressed communities, then we're going to help create more and more friends around the world. Lastly, from time to time there is a critical vote that makes a large difference in which way the body politic goes in the world today. One of those big issues in the next few years ahead is going to be the Palestinian issue, which raises its head oftentimes in the United Nations. As you interact with the, the countries you'll be interacting with, particularly Mr. Murray, some of the things you've talked about in terms of those countries, their votes are going to be critical to us to help us influence the direction of the UN in terms of which way we go in terms of Palestinian recognition or, or no recognition thereof or something in between. So I urge you to keep in mind the perspective of not just your job for what it is at ECOSOC, but also the job to win more friends and influence more of our enemies on the UN stage so that when they go to vote, they'll vote with a positive image of the United States of America and what we're trying to accomplish through the UN rather than be an obstacle for us in, in the issues we stand for, like Israel and other things like that. So I wish you the best. I'm proud of your nomination. We're glad to have another Georgian coming. If I can ever help you, let me know. Thank you so much, Senator Isaacson. It's a great honor to have your support, and I really appreciate your kind words, especially about Thomasville, my wonderful hometown. Um, and I think that I actually may have been my sister who was in the Rose Parade that year. I have to ask my mom. She's back here, so maybe she can clarify all that. Um, but, yes, the issues that you raise are critically important for the work that we'll be doing. And I... I Take your message very much to heart and have confirmed. Look forward to working with you and the rest of the committee members to implement these things. Congratulations to all of you and best wishes.
Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all very much for your willingness to serve this country. Mr. Washburn, I, I was encouraged by your comments about um, taking over at OPIC with the idea of growing the agency and being more productive because I was very distressed when I saw the budget proposal from this administration that would um, phase out OPIC, um, an organization that I believe has been very important to businesses throughout the country. In New Hampshire, we have about $115 million in projects that have helped small businesses in our state, and it's been very important. So can you share with us whether you have any understanding with the administration about what your role will be as the head of OPIC? Um, have you, was there a request from the administration when they nominated you for this position that you would phase out the agency as president? Thank you, Senator, for the question. No, there was never any specific uh, discussion at all about phasing the agency out. Again, I, I run a private business in Dallas. I got a great life. I don't need to come up here and shut something down. I'm a builder and a grower. And if, if I thought I was coming up here just to melt something away, I'd, I'd melt in Dallas in the heat today. So. <laughs> well, again, I'm encouraged to hear that. You know, one of my favorite statistics is about the number we have only about 1% of small and medium-sized businesses who do business overseas, and yet um, large businesses have that opportunity every day. And that one of, one of the challenges I believe we have is to help those small businesses in particular through organizations like OPIC, through the Exim Bank. They have been so important to um, success for smaller and medium-sized businesses in successfully trading overseas. And so I, I hope that... Um, you will continue that role as the head of OPIC and with Mr. Bohegian that the two of you will preside over an expansion of OPIC in a way that helps small businesses in this country create jobs because that's, um, that's our goal. I, I wanted to ask you, Ms. Curry, I was very pleased to see your statement about the importance of empowering women. Um, something that I think is absolutely critical. And as we look at how do we raise the economic um, prosperity of countries around the world, we know that empowering women is a very important piece of that, uh, that women tend to give back more to their, not just to their families, but to their communities, and that that's important um, in developing um, economic opportunities. One of the areas where I think it's very important to help empower women is where the UN has been very important is through UNFPA um, because they have provided women access to the ability to determine um, their, to plan their families and to, um, that affects everything from domestic violence to what kind of job opportunities they get in the future to their education. So can you tell me whether you think we should continue to support UNFPA in funding? Uh, thank you for that question, Senator Shaheen. Um, I, as you know, uh, according to the Kemp-Kasten determination that the department made, 
they are rescinding $32 million in funding to UNFPA. And those funds will be redistributed through global health programs um, by USAID so that there won't be breaks in service and that women will continue to have access to important family planning and other care that they need to manage their lives, birth spacing, and all of the key issues that you raise that make it possible for women to engage economically, politically, and to fully participate in the lives of their countries. Um, and whether, you know, if confirmed, I look forward to participating in the discussion in the next fiscal year about and looking at the Kemp-Caston determination and whether UNFPA has made the kinds of reforms that will allow us to participate in their work again. Um, and that is, that's all I can offer to do at this point. Um, the experts that I have talked to have suggested that Kim Caston is not an issue with UNFPA, that that's a red herring, and that, in fact, the ability for to distribute those dollars through other organizations to be as effective is um, really not going to achieve the same outcomes. Do you think we're going to be able to be as effective by distributing dollars through those other organizations? Well, as you know, I was not part of the discussion or the decision, so I would have to refer you back to the State Department and the people who did um, make that determination, what the basis for their determination that UNFPA was in violation of the Kemp-Caston provisions. And I think that USAID has excellent partners in women's health and global health that they can utilize, and they are working very hard, and I would refer you to them to about how they plan to continue to provide these services. Um, well, thank you. I look forward to seeing your ongoing efforts to continue to work to empower women because I think that's a critical piece of what we need to do and what we need to do if we're going to provide economic opportunities around the world. Mr. Murray, I was, um, I'm very pleased to hear your comments about the importance of peacekeeping missions. This committee had a chance to meet with Secretary General Guterres not too long ago where he talked about the importance of reforming the peacekeeping operations, and I know he's working very closely with Ambassador Haley to try and do that. But one of the concerns I have is that one proposal to um, try and reform peacekeeping would be to decrease the resources that are available. Um, is that something that you believe is important as we look at um, all of the challenges we have around the world, that, that cutting off their money is a way to reform them? Uh, I appreciate that question, Senator. Uh, in terms of the budget with peacekeeping operations, what we've seen since Ambassador Haley has arrived at the United Nations as our permanent representative, they've negotiated a new budget and it's $500 million less than it was last year. And part of that comes from some cost savings, a couple of things that we've already mentioned, such as the hybrid operation in Darfur, which, uh, where the African Union is taking a larger role, enabling us to pull some UN uh, troops out, saving money there closing down the operation in Ivory Coast, transitioning the operation in Haiti from a peacekeeping operation into something that's more uh, institution building, especially with regard to rule of law and having more uh, police forces there than troops. And finally, Liberia, which uh, I alluded to earlier, is on a glide path to close in March of next year after they go through, hopefully go through some elections, which, by the way, if they have a... Uh, successful elections. This is the first time since 1944 
that Liberia will have had right. a peaceful transition of power. So those are the kinds of cost-saving, Senator, that I think that we should look for. And that's all under the rubric, as I was mentioning earlier, about goal-oriented peacekeeping with a defined political objective that we can achieve and then declare victory and go home. Thank you, Mr. Murray. Uh, Senator Coons. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Young, Senator Merkley, uh, for convening this hearing. Uh, and to uh, our four nominees before us today for your willingness uh, to serve or continue serving uh, our nation. I was grateful for the opportunity uh, to meet with several of you before today's hearing. Um, I support the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. I had the same question that Senator Shaheen did about uh, the tension between the administration's budget proposal and the uh, intentions of Mr. Washburn and Mr. Bohegian. Uh, and I was pleased to hear your answer, and I was encouraged uh, by our uh, private conversation before this and by your opening statement uh, and by the impressive uh, dedication that you and your family have shown to engaging personally uh, in the work of building uh, in the developing world. Um, more and more of the money that is making a difference in the developing world comes from private sector sources. And so I think uh, having at the helm uh, folks in OPEC who understand uh, the importance of development finance and the disciplines of the private sector could be a real contribution. Um, there's also uh, a huge demand for more development financing, and our competitors in uh, Asia and in Europe recognize that. And so um, the developing nations of Africa, Latin America, and Asia have increasingly looked to Chinese and European sources rather than American uh, because ours are so limited. Um, I am hopeful that we will work together in a bipartisan way on this committee um, not to reduce the scope and capability of OPIC, but to actually um, expand it and to strengthen it. I hope to see us take up legislation to reform and improve the way that the United States government uh, pursues development finance, and I'm pleased we had an opportunity to discuss those ideas. So let me jump into that, if I might. Mr. Washburn, can you just explain to me and to critics uh, not here, I think, today, um, the value of OPIC and why it returns value, not just money to the Treasury, but value to the American people, um, and whether you believe that it crowds out activity in the private sector, as some critics of OPIC have suggested. Thank you, Senator Coons, and thank you for your time and our discussions um, last week. As we discussed in the meeting, OPIC has a very unique, it's not crowding out uh, people in other countries is that we're actually crowding in. And what I mean by that is we're going to countries where banks won't go, companies won't go. Companies do have to put a substantial amount of risk capital in place, which as a sitting on loan committees of banks, I always like to see. I never like to see someone get 100% loans. They've got risk capital in place. But before someone can acquire a loan guarantee, political risk insurance, they have to prove it's a very, very um, stringent, underwriting process that you have to go through at OPIC to show that you can't get money from any other source or insurance product from anywhere else. We currently have $22 billion out. Only $4 billion of that is in insurance. And so a lot of the criticisms have come in the political risk insurance. But there are some countries you just can't get insurance in at all. And without OPIC there to do it to protect American interest, there would be no way we could go in there and do business. Well, and I think, as you demonstrated, uh, you know by time spent in Lusaka and elsewhere mm -hmm. in the developing world that in countries like that, if we want there to be an American private sector footprint without OPIC, it's not going to happen. I agree with you. I'd be interested in hearing uh, from both of you, if I might, um, what reforms to OPIC you'd pursue if confirmed to make it more effective, um, how you plan to convince other administration officials of OPIC's 
um, positive and constructive role in mobilizing uh, private sector development, um, and what work you might want to do with this committee to help advance those reforms or improvements. Thank you, Senator, for that opportunity. I believe OPIC represents the best in American values, and the administration has opened a process whereby we can re-examine across government how to reform agencies such as OPIC. So I know Mr. Washburn and I look forward to being part of that discussion. Additional authorities for OPIC could include what counterparts in development finance institutions overseas have, such as direct equity investments, which is something that the development community in the United States has long looked for to be able to promote American jobs here as well as, as, well as American values abroad. When you look at, as you mentioned earlier, our European and Chinese counterparts who are truly investing trillions of dollars in these sort of efforts, America uh, is ready for a 21st century OPIC. Beyond that, critics have called uh, OPIC market distorting, and we believe that over the last 15 years, many of those objections have been answered. Whereas uh, Mr. Mossbacher, who's here in attendance today, is a former president of OPIC, uh, Mr. Watson, as well as Elizabeth Littlefield, have worked with this committee and Congress to ensure that at a transactional level, as Mr. Washburn stated, the uh, each and every transaction is looked at for any sort of market distortion, including a certification on the insurance side mm -hmm. that this business will not distort the market. That's true through the Office of Investment Policy, through the President's Office, through the Board, and through oversight through committees such as this. In addition, uh, critics have also said that we need to look at the uh, the ability for having additional tools throughout reorganizing the U.S. government. That can include working with uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation more closely, USAID more closely, and certainly through coordination with the, the board of OPIC and the interagency process. So I think this conversation that this committee has led in conjunction with the president's budget proposal truly allows uh, OPIC the chance to begin a conversation about what development finance would look like in the 21st century. And if confirmed, I welcome that conversation. Well, I'm optimistic that both of you will find in your engagement with OPIC that there is a thorough and rigorous review process, a motivated and capable staff, and that this is a role that um, we should be working together to strengthen um, so that we can be a, a more effective um, partner in development around the world. And I look forward to doing that with both of you. I have additional questions for the other two witnesses, but my time is up, and um, I'll either submit them for the record or wait for a second round. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Kuhn. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to all of you. Congratulations to all for your appointments um, or your nominations. We wouldn't want to presume for your nominations, but it, each of you have a significant public service record. I'm going to pretty much focus on the OPIC question, too. There's an old line that Everything that needs to be said has been said, but everybody who needs to say it hasn't said it yet. And I want to emphasize the importance of OPIC in Virginia. Um, before I do, I want to acknowledge a, one of my predecessors as governor of Virginia, Governor Gilmore, is here. And I think, Mr. Chair, you acknowledged him too, a fine public servant. I just want to recognize him. Um, OPIC really helps a lot of Virginia businesses. Um, I do not get lobbied from Virginia businesses saying this is a bad thing, it should be reduced, it should be shut down. 
Um, I know there are some criticisms in the ether about OPIC, but this is not what I'm hearing from Virginia businesses. What I'm hearing about OPIC and similar agencies like the XM Bank is, frankly, we need more support. Um, and this is really critical to enabling private sector businesses in America to succeed. Um, so I'm, I'm confused with the budgetary proposal. Um, first, let, let me just make sure I'm right about this. The, the, the quote from the president's budget on this is that they want to engage in activities to, quote, initiate orderly wind-down activities. And um, there's money allocated uh, in the 2018 budget proposal, $60.8 million, to, quote, initiate orderly wind-down activities. My understanding is that OPIC is not a drain on the the general fund budget, but OPIC actually returns money to the general fund budget. Am I correct about that? Yes, sir. Approximately three hundred million a year. Three hundred million. Uh, Two point three billion dollars has uh, generated for the federal budget in the last six years. I mean, this is returning dollars. Um, uh, at the pronunciation of your name, sir, is it Bogusin? Bo. I'm sorry, Bohegan. Bohegan. Mr. Bohegan. Five years to learn. Um, you were talking about sort of critics' arguments about OPIC. Have either of you had discussions with the administration? What do they say about the reason that they want to wind down OPIC? I think within the administration there's a range of opinions that you would expect from any executive branch. Uh, certainly, if confirmed, we look forward to continuing those conversations with executive branch officials. But I think... If you uh, look at the OPIC budget page in particular, they've left open the opportunity to reform OPIC. Mm -hmm. They say that over the la almost 10 years, OPIC has not had the chance for reauthorization, which has left it open to critics who are looking for reform. So I think it's a, a first step in, in putting OPIC on a 21st century footing. Mr. Washburn. As, as he mentioned, with this committee and also with Congress, when our meetings with uh, several members around uh, this table, we hear the same thing back. You know, 75% of OPIC's loans are to small businesses, less than 8% to a Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. It has less than a 1% loan loss. I mean, when you look at that... Which, which is, you know, any private lender would just... Kill for that, wouldn't they? I mean, it's fantastic. It's staff of around 250 people. It's an amazing group they put together. They've been in business since 1971. It's it's really a shining example mm -hmm. for what we could, what government could be. And that's what I'm excited about going in. I don't have to reform it from the standpoint of something that's has issues. The reform we want to bring in is more of bringing it into the 21st century on financing mechanisms. Because mm -hmm. when it was set up, it originally was leftover after the Marshall Plan and USAID, and it was mm -hmm. formed on its own as a debt guarantee. And really, more than anything else, it was a political risk insurance facility to have for people to go into developing countries where no one would go into. Well, the way businesses evolve today, people look at the expertise of OPIC to go into some third-world countries, like, as I mentioned earlier, Zambia, where we, which we know well. Mm -hmm. American businesses aren't, aren't going to go in there. And this is a way to have a soft diplomacy. It's a great foreign policy tool for the U.S. government. And we think it's something that we're excited to get in and try to find some other financing mm -hmm. vehicles we can put with the toolbox we have and expand its scope. One of the, uh, I think everybody on this committee is very familiar with, with arguments about, you know, if this sector's crowding out my sector. We, we all are in tug of wars between 
banks and credit unions, for example, they're crowding me out, no, they're crowding me out. We just don't hear this about OPEC. We're not hearing from private sector financial institutions or others that OPEC is blocking you know, other private sector entities from being involved. So I'm, I'm puzzled about this one, I'm, but I'm heartened by your discussion that comments with the administration suggest an openness to reform. This is part of a, of a, of a bigger pattern. We're grappling, for example, with an overall State Department USAID budget that's dramatically reduced. And when we've talked to the Secretary of State about it, I, I would have felt really good if he said, we need to reform how we spend, we can spend more effectively. Instead, what we're being told is, well, we can't spend that money anyway. I know what other nations are doing around the world uh, in terms of trying to build relationships, um, invest, find allies, find trade. I know what they're spending. And so when there's an attitude that, well, we just we don't need these agencies, it causes me great concern. So I'm heartened by your discussion that maybe, you know, 10 years after the last reauthorization, it's time to, you know, think about reforms that can make uh, the dollars that we do spend on OPEC the effort that we pay to OPEC even more productive. And with that, I'm going to cede the rest of my time. I just hope my colleagues and I, we would love to work together with you on reform to make OPEC even more effective. But I know this, Virginia businesses uh, will consider it a real loss to them. I, it, I, just to extend beyond, we're in a global economy now. Your ability to find deals or, and customers around the world is a sine qua non of... of being economically powerful. And if you remove um, organizations and institutions that help you do that, um, we're really just, it's like eating our seed corn. We're gonna hurt ourselves. So let's help our businesses not hurt them. And if reform is part of it, you'll find a lot of willing partners. If a wind down is part of it, I, I think there's gonna be some significant opposition to that. Yes, sir, thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Well, I thank my colleagues for their thoughtful uh, comments and, and questions. Uh, I understand, uh, Senator Merkley would like an additional five minutes, so uh, I'll give him a second round. Uh, and uh, I believe everyone else is fine. So, uh, Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And uh, Mr. Murray, uh, I think it's probably good to give you a chance here to address one of your, your comments that may come up among members. And that is when you, you wrote that government is a massive parasite putting us on a path to civil unrest. I'm summarizing and shortening it. Federal government of career politicians of both parties have the problem. Uh, and then you go on to call for a uh, Article 5 convention. Um, any, in this case, as you talk about government being this problem, how will you, in your position at the UN, um, make sure that our UN governmental team doesn't become part of the problem. Thanks for the opportunity to address uh, some comments from, from my book. The intent of those comments uh, had to do with my concern uh, as a private citizen at that time with our excessive federal debt. Um, I've heard a uh, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as well as um, uh, Senator uh, Hillary Clinton mentioned that our federal debt is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, threats to our national security. And as an uh, individual who spent his adult life in the military, that was of great concern to me. And that was the nature of those comments. I'm looking for a way to mitigate that. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Ms. Curry, I want to go back to the question that Senator Shaheen was asking about the UNFPA, Family Planning Association. Uh, it has a record in the Zatri refugee camp in Jordan of facilitating care for 7,400 women who gave birth to 7,400 babies without a single baby or mother dying, which is rather extraordinary in, in a refugee zone. And they, they work in areas of conflict and uh, refugee camps around the world uh, in pursuit of, of um, enabling children to get a good start in life with the type of health care that they've been providing. Wouldn't it make sense to keep empowering the UNFPA? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator Merkley. Again, as I said with Senator Shaheen, I wasn't part of those discussions. I'd have to refer you back to the people at the State Department who made the determination under Kemp Keston that UNFPA was not the appropriate vehicle for U.S. funding for family planning internationally. And that my understanding is that USAID is working hard to try to make sure that there are not gaps in service and that the organizations, as you know, UNFPA also contracts out most, much, much of its work to other organizations and it is possible for the United States through USAID and other mechanisms to fund those same organizations bilaterally rather than through the multilateral um, vector of UNFPA. And I'd add further um, that I think that the United States is always open and it's been my understanding over the years that this issue has come up in various contexts where I've worked on it, whether it was on the Hill as an appropriation staffer when a lot of this legislation was coming up, that we're always trying to work with UNFPA to try to deal with the problematic issues, which in this case is, a, a, my understanding, is a finding related to China and their and el coercive elements of their family planning program. So I, I would just like to note that UNFPA, for the record, does not provide any financing for, for abortions, does not conduct any abortions, and has had an extraordinary record of supporting successful pregnancies and births in very difficult settings. And I, I think there will people, there will be children and women hurt by this decision. And I know you referred me back to others, but I was looking for your opinion on it. Um, and, uh, but I won't put you under further pressure on it since um, you've had a couple chances to respond to it. But let me ask you about something different. Uh, we have 20 million people facing starvation, high threat of starvation over the next six months due to the four famines. And ECOSOC's humanitarian affairs segment is a unique platform that brings together the member states, UN organizations, the humanitarian and development partners, the private sector and affected communities. Has the UN responded quickly enough and, and if you will, effectively enough uh, and what or what more should be done and should we commit more resources more of uh, United States resources the four famines as we've all discussed is an epic tragedy and, and failure of multiple political actors to conduct themselves in a humane fashion that the, the conflicts that are driving these famines 
are not going to be solved by humanitarian assistance. We can only attempt to alleviate the human suffering in the short term, but the long-term answer to these, these problems is political in nature. UN OCHA very quickly worked together with other humanitarian actors, including the ICRC, to come up with a coordinated appeal. Unfortunately, as Senator Young said, the response has not been what one would hope, especially considering the involvement of certain countries in some of these conflicts and their ability to marshal substantial resources to improve the situation, not just financial resources, but use their own influence to make access easier and more um, safe and get, get the resources to the people who need them the most. The fact that in Yemen, 60% of the population is food insecure is beyond belief. This is not something that is going to be solved quickly. The political solutions need to be addressed in the Security Council and through the political mechanisms, bilateral, multilateral, whatever we can throw at these problems, we need to be working them. But on the humanitarian side, I think that the the effort that UN OCHA is trying to put together with its partners is sufficient to meet the short-term needs. It's just a question of the member states coming up with the resources. And if confirmed, I really hope I can work with you to help marshal other countries, other partners, to bring those resources to bear so that we can all tackle this together. Because we can't solve it ourselves. The United States can't we can't resolve these problems. We need a lot of teamwork from a lot of other actors who are more involved in them directly. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Merkley, uh, to you and your team for your continued partnership uh, on this subcommittee. I want to thank our nominees again for your uh, thoughtful responses and for your testimonies. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members uh, to submit questions for the record. We ask the nominees to respond as promptly as possible. Your responses will also be made a part of the record. Uh, I want to note uh, the presence of, of Senator Gardner uh, for the record. And uh, with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is now adjourned.